welcome back to Cognitive Evolution. My name is Cody Calmers, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. My guest this week is Nancy Canwisher. She is a much-beloved cognitive neuroscientist at MIT, and uh, I would not be the first person to describe her as a badass scientist. I believe BuzzFeed was among the first to do so in commenting on a video she made circa 2015 uh, in which Nancy shaved her head to demonstrate the different um, structural and functional areas uh, of, of the brain as they would be visible from the perspective of the scalp. Um, it's a great video. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. But she is, her official title is the Ellen Swallow Richards Professor in the Department of Brain and Cognitive Sciences at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Um, she also is associated with the McGovern Institute for Brain Research. And she's just basically one of the most important researchers in cognitive neuroscience, in cognitive neuroscience being really in on the ground floor of uh, functional neuroimaging and working out what, you know, uh, essentially what the connection is between the, the studies of cognitive psychology and thinking and that sort of stuff and being able to look inside at, at the very least, what's happening with blood flow in the brain during uh, those cognitive processes. So her most famous work probably has to do with discovering the fusiform face area, a, a particular area of the brain that is dedicated, it seems, specifically for identifying and and uh you know sort of thinking about faces so uh, we talk a lot about her early experiences as a scientist which her, her roots as a scientist go very deep and it's very cool to see how that played out as you know if, if you look at the early days of, of cognitive neuroscience sort of think about it as this big scientific advance on you know what can sort of be in cognitive psychology like oh i don't know like uh does it seem sufficiently rigorous that sort of stuff you can kind of see the connection of how someone like nancy would be so well suited to bringing that next level of of rigor and investigation uh and and, and just you know sort of biological depth i guess to the cognitive psychology of the time and uh, there was a lot of, so that was kind of the, you know, I is, is in line with what I expected, but there's also so much more to her and especially her early ambitions of uh, being a journalist and, and uh, her interest in the world and, and making it a better place. And it's, it's cool. It was cool to learn more about that. And that was, was pretty inspiring to, to hear about her perspective on that. So at any rate, she's just a fun person to listen to. She's done a lot of great work as a mentor and has brought up so many great people in the field. So we talk a little bit about that at the end. But at any rate, it was just a joy to have her. So without any further ado, here is Nancy Canwisher. So the first thing that I usually like to ask people about is, uh, is where did you grow up? I grew up in Woods Hole, Massachusetts which is a pretty amazing place. Um, it's beautiful and fun, but it's more amazing because it's just full of scientists. So I'm not one of those inspirational cases of this person who had nothing and found science. Like, no, it was handed to me on a platter. I mean, I was crashing in the back door of the neural systems and behavior course when I was in, I don't know if that was high school or early college, but you know, it was right down the street from me. So I just 
wandered in and people wondered who that kid was, but nobody asked. So I had everything at my fingertips. So what's, what did your parents do? Were they, were they involved in scientific research? Yeah, my mom was a um, locally very uh, respected and, and kind of cherished artist. Uh, and my dad worked at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. Yeah, he was a scientist um, in, back in an era when you could do everything. So he studied ostriches in Africa and freezing fish in the Arctic. And he took um, went on expeditions up the Amazon. And oh, my God, did he have a blast. Oh my God. Yeah. What I'd give to, to be a scientist during that period for sure. Totally. I mean, his first, his first cruise, he shows up in Woods Hole with a degree in optics and uh, he, the way he tells it, he basically just knocked on the door and they gave him a job. And a few weeks later, he is on a sailing ship crossing the Atlantic, climbing the mast. That was the official research vessel of the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, the Atlantis. Yeah. And uh, you know that was a a pretty golden age of uh, of science. That that's that's really cool. Yeah. No. And I and I can kind of see. I don't think you would shock anyone by saying like, "Oh, it just turns out I was interested in science from a young age." You sort of have that, you know, sort of radiant brilliance of your classic, you know, scientist that just sort of emanates that sort of thing. Uh, for better for better or worse, I think that you can get a lot of people to agree to that statement. I won't make you agree to it but um but at any rate well it's just luck it's just luck you know to be uh raised in such a way that you feel encouraged and entitled to just kind of run around and craft your own questions and go after them and you know that was just kind of a natural thing when i was a kid but was there like a first thing that you were like oh snails or like something like that where you like you got interested in something and it it like it stands out to you as like oh yeah that's the first that was like a big you know sort of informal milestone in in me getting into i guess especially the biological world and that sort of stuff um, not a key moment I can really identify because, you know, as I say, I was just kind of steeped in science all around me all the time. Um, but I have a few kind of memories. Like I, I remember as an undergrad, this is really weird, but I was a biology major and uh, I got sick of killing animals every time I had to do an experiment. You know, I was working in a blood cell uh, differentiation lab. And the first thing he had to do to do an experiment is grab a mouse and put a pencil behind its neck and pull up its tail and break its neck and, you know, carve out its femur and get some red cells, differentiating red cells and study them. I cannot even remember what the questions were, but, you know, I didn't have a deep ethical objection. I just didn't like it. It wasn't fun. And so I just thought, I need to work in a department where they don't kill their subjects first. Oh, that might be the psychology department. <laughs> um, <laughs> so well, at least the ritual uh, for for sacrificing will be much more interesting if it's done on undergraduates versus rooms. Right, right, right. So I um, this is off the track of what you asked, but I I sort of found my way into the psychology department, and I can remember I took um, I was working in Molly Potter's lab. And I took her undergrad course and she's brilliant and wonderful, but for whatever reason, the lectures didn't totally inspire me. And I was kind of a bit of a derelict as an undergrad. I just wasn't all that assiduous. I wasn't a great student. And I can remember like a a week before the final thinking, oh my God, I better like actually learn some of this stuff. And I 
took out the course textbook, which is this very slim little volume. I think it was called Cognition uh, by Mike Posner. And I started reading it. I just remember thinking, what? What? Just by measuring reaction times, you can infer all this stuff. And it somehow hadn't really dawned on me you know, how magnificent the enterprise was from such, um, you know, humble data. And that just was totally thrilling. I remember in a state of sleep deprivation, which, you know, was the constant state as an undergrad. Like, I think I thought it was cool to be horribly sleep deprived. It was stupid. Anyway, in delirium, reading Mike Posner's book and just finding it super thrilling. That was a, that was a key moment for me. Um, yeah, I guess that was kind of what I was wondering about is that like because you had such a, you know, intimate view of science growing up and that was just sort of like a part of your milieu. Did you get to psychology and feel that it was sufficiently sciencey like at the time or was it like really that sort of like reaction time kind of thing? I was, where... I was pretty suspicious and my dad was like. I mean, he was, he had a real sense of humor about it, so he wasn't nasty, but he just thought it was hilarious that I was dabbling in this <laughs> field that he assumed was deeply disrespectable, you know? <laughs> um, but I, that, if anything, uh, encouraged me. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I was skeptical at first, but, um, you know, there's nothing like collecting data and watching the data roll in, which you did in a much more immediate way. I mean, I did experiments where, I mean, this just dates me, but I did experiments with tachistoscopes where my partner and I were doing visual search experiments. We read Ann Treisman's stuff and we're like, oh my God, this is amazing, but we don't believe it. We think you can guide search by color. This later became Jeremy Wolf's whole guided search thing. Anyway, John and I were in there literally drawing visual search displays on pieces of cardboard and putting them, you know, that'd be one trial. You'd put it in the tachistoscope and go click, write down the subject's answer and the reaction time, you know, 576 with your pencil on a piece of paper. <laughs> and so you watch the data roll in in a much more immediate way, which is ridiculous and very backward, but it also gives you a more visceral sense of data and what they look like and when to believe them. And when you get um, really reliable effects you can just see it immediately in, in a kind of nice way yeah um so before we kind of like get into how that became more formalized and you sort of got traction as, as, a, as a researcher i'm curious to know while you are in dereliction of your uh curricular duties as an undergraduate like what did you get up to like what else did you like to do uh, in that time of your life, did you have other things going on, or like what? What did what did that look like? Oh God, nothing, nothing respectable. I mean, <laughs> you know, back then we did lots of drugs. I mean, what psychologist doesn't kind of think, okay, I'm interested in the mind, let's mess with it and see what happens? Like we all did that, and that was super interesting. And back then it was cool to like, you know, get wasted with your friends and just talk for hours about what was going on in your mind. You know, later that was like not cool to. You know, even acknowledge you were high, but I just thought it was the coolest thing to talk about what was going on. Yeah. Um, so there was a lot of that. I did a lot of hiking and windsurfing and, uh, I don't know, just running around in the woods like a feral human. <laughs> uh, that sounds, that sounds equally as important to your, your education as a, as a budding, uh, cognitive neuroscientist at the time, uh, as, as your, as your background in Woods Hole and everything like that. So, yeah, um, that's cool. And so did you, 
So you took that uh, course with uh, Mary Potter, Molly Potter. Yeah, Molly. Molly. Uh-huh. Um, and that was a moment that I was like, okay, great. Uh, this is something really cool. I'm uh, further interested in that. Did it immediately sort of click for you? It's like, okay, I'm going to pursue this, and this is going to be my sort of scientific, my area of scientific inquiry. Uh, or or did it sort of more slowly just sort of drift? No, I took I took a million twists and turns. Um, but I have to tell it just because it's a fun story how I actually met Molly. Um, when I decided I was done with killing mice and I would check out the psychology department, I looked at the listings for research positions in the psychology department. And I found this one that seemed kind of interesting, but I was a very kind of nervous, unconfident person at the time. And I remember vividly calling Molly from a payphone in Harvard Square, all nervous, get up the nerve, dial the number. This really lovely, fun kind of person with a raucous laugh picks up the phone and we talk for quite a while. And then she says, well, you seem like a reasonable person. Um, How about you come in and let's meet? And what's your name again? And when I told her my name, she said, are you from what's whole? I said, yes. And she said, my brother-in-law just bought your old house on Buzzards Bay Ave. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Like, you know, 75 miles from Boston, uh, the house I grew up in, my graduate advisor's close relative had just purchased. Yeah. Anyway, weird coincidences. Yeah. Um, anyway, so we became uh, buddies and she was incredibly supportive and fun and she was doing all this wild stuff in her lab. And yeah, I thought it was pretty kind of risque. I mean, it really didn't, I was still like not totally sure it was science, but it sure was fun. Um, but it was also like hilariously primitive at the time, you know, Molly's famous for her work using rapid serial visual presentation. But what most people don't realize is back when she was doing that, the effort it took to make a stimulus was monumental. So all of that stuff was shot on film, right? And so I can remember making my first experiment and I was in the psychology department late at night and there's this light table that we were making stimuli on. And you would mount a camera above it. And then you would make each word using something called letraset. It was these prepared letters. And you would take a card and get the exact location and carefully glue the letters in the exactly correct position. Took about a half an hour per word, or I don't know, maybe 15 minutes. And then you would go click with a movie camera. And that would be one word in an RSVP sequence. So it took a really long time just to make your basic experiment with a small number of of sentence or word string stimuli in them. I remember the first time I made an experiment, I went through this whole thing and I spent like a week or two and I made my stimuli. And what I hadn't realized was that the movie camera was facing like backwards on the light table, not like this. And it turns out there is no transformation you can do to a physical piece of film to fix that. So start all over, (laughs) reorient the words. So anyway, so one of the things that impresses me about Molly is the really deep insights that she achieved from the simplest experiments. I mean, really simple, basic reaction time experiments from which she inferred fascinating things like that there are abstract concepts that you can access from either words or pictures, but they go to the same abstract concept. And she derived that deep insight about mental phenomena from a couple of really simple reaction time experiments. I think that you have to be much more innovative and smart 
to get that kind of deep insight from humble data than you do to say run a brain imaging experiment where stuff is kind of handed to you in a much richer format. Yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of curious about that. That's something that I think about as a as a graduate student is are all of the like good simple innovative experiments like you're describing have they already all been done and we just sort of like do more technologically sophisticated stuff because we can and that's sort of where the field has gone or are there other things you could go back and do um that are of that really just straightforward catchy punchy just like wow such a like straightforward i don't know do you think like what's your this sort of i think there are but i think it gets harder and harder you know a lot of smart people have been doing psychophysics for a long time and that means if you want to do something really important and new you have to be pretty smart or clever or lucky or all three to come up with something just just kind of picked over and i'm sure there's stuff that's been missed but it is easier to work in an area that lots of smart people haven't already been working in for a long time you know i I can remember long ago, one of my scientific elders saying, oh, the big, really big advances in science all come from new technology. And I just found that really offensive and annoying and it made me mad. It's like, no, we're smart. We ask questions. We don't, we are not limited by technology, but I have really come around. I mean, I think you, you know, part of the real fun of the early days of neuroimaging was it was just absolutely wide open, like nothing had been done. And so you could do, you know, unbelievably simple-minded things like all of my first, you know, 10 years of experiments were like, duh, let's compare faces and objects. I mean, like, duh, right? It's just all wide open. You could just run in and do it. So that's, it's certainly more fun to work in an area where there are new methods enabling you to measure new stuff. It's just a bigger space. Yeah. So, okay, so um, you got involved with that sort of research as an undergraduate. You went straight through from undergrad to PhD. Oh, God, not exactly. Um, so, yeah, I guess my other question over here is that I know, um, yeah, yeah, no, you, you go ahead and tell the story and I'll follow up. Uh, with oh, God, it's so, it's so twisted and incoherent. I'm not even sure I can piece it together. Um, give it a, but give yeah, it a I, shot. Uh, yeah, so... Um, Let's see. Yeah, I landed in, I, I took some time off after undergrad and I just sort of bumped around Cambridge and, you know, volunteered in different labs. I worked in Steve Cousins' lab and Molly's lab. I did some stereopsis experiments with Jeremy Wolf. I basically just bummed around and nosed in anybody's lab that would let me check it out. Um, Cause I felt like I was supposed to know what I wanted to do when I applied to grad school. So I did that for a while. Uh, I then went traveling around the world for four months, um, just for fun. And, uh, and then I started grad school in, I forget, I think 1980. And, uh, yeah, it was a fun time. Um, it was a fun time for the first few years. And then I really hit a wall, like for several years, um, my experiments just didn't work. I mean, one after another, after another, and it went on and on. And it was rough, you know, at first it's like the first few experiments bomb and you're like, okay, whatever. I was pretty resilient, but this went on for a long time. And, you know, I can remember doing all these experiments on semantic priming 
And in the, in the literature at the time, if you looked at a semantic priming effect, like how much faster can you do a lexical decision on the word doctor if it follows the word nurse than if it follows the word house, right? And in the literature, those semantic priming effects were all, you know, 60 milliseconds or more. Well, in my hands, they were like, you know, 14 milliseconds. And so I felt like an absolute loser and I got more and more discouraged. And in hindsight, you know, if you do it right, they're more like 14 milliseconds than like 60 milliseconds. If you build in confounds and do all kinds of other things, you can get bigger effects, but you know, they're tiny. And one of the, one of the things I took away from that, I mean, not consciously at the time, but I'm sure it affected me is just an aversion for tiny effect sizes. I just hate them. They just drive you crazy. They come and they go and you're never fully confident of them. And um, I like big effect sizes. <laughs> um, so anyway, so I did that for a few years and I, I got pretty dispirited. In fact, I got very dispirited. I went home and cried almost every day for about two years because I just felt like this is not happening. And. I can remember like at least three times I told Molly that like the verdict was in, I sucked as a scientist, it wasn't happening and I was going to drop out and do other things. And she didn't let me, she just didn't let me. And she went to extreme lengths. I remember one time she said, okay, who do you see as a really amazingly brilliant, successful scientist? And I just, you know, offered up that kind of at the time, very obvious suggestion of, okay, Hubel and Weasel. And she says, okay, let's pick apart what those guys did. They figured out how to get an electrode next to a neuron and get some spikes. And then they just put all kinds of different stuff in front of the cat and recorded the responses. Big deal. And you know, it was a really funny approach to kind of encourage me by saying the stuff that looks so amazing and out of reach wasn't all that fancy and amazing. Anyway, it was great. It was, you know, it encouraged me and it was just cool that you would take the time to come up with stuff like that to re-encourage me. But it didn't stop me from trying other things. I did, I dropped out of grad school three times um, to go be a journalist. I was, um, when my experiments weren't working, I took to reading the New York Times cover to cover and I got more and more outraged about the horrible things the United States was doing at the time with you know, buildup of nuclear weapons and the you know, horrible support for really nasty wars that were going on in Central America. And so that became more and more of an obsession, I think in part because my experiments weren't working. And so I was thinking about other things. And uh, I went, I did, I took, at one point, I, I, I just phoned up this journalist who was writing for the Boston Globe, uh, Boston Globe, Pamela Constable, I think was her name. And she was traveling with the Salvadoran guerrillas, writing these incredible stories, like right there as, you know, nuns are getting massacred and all that horrible stuff that happened in the early eighties. And I just called her up one day and I said, okay, how did you get to do what you do? And she said, I wrote about fires for about five years before I got to do anything interesting. And I thought, oh my God, that's like, that's a pretty, you know, that's a pretty big entry cost. And so I just decided, well, rather than try that for five years and figure out if that would be, you know, something I'd like to do, I'll just fly to Managua and try it. So, so I flew to Nicaragua at the peak of the Contra War. I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. My Spanish sucked. I, mean, I didn't really speak Spanish. I like knew a 
few hundred words. And I spent a month there going around um, interviewing like everyone. I can remember like going to, um, you know, I remember standing just like, you know, 30 feet from Daniel Ortega, who was a big hero at the time. Whoops, not so much anymore. But anyway, it was, um, it was pretty damn exciting. I remember hanging out at the at the poolside at the Intercontinental Hotel in Managua. And me and a bunch of other lefty journalists were hanging out by the side of the pool. And these horrible guys who were running the Contra War out of Honduras used to hang out at the pool. And so we would flirt with them and we would learn all this stuff. It was just, it was, anyway, it was totally, it was pretty exciting. Um, and pretty interesting and felt pretty important as well as exciting. And, uh, and so it took me a while to get over my, um, my parallel desire to give up science and go be a journalist. That's just, that's, that's incredible. Um, so is it, yeah. So, um, is it actually, I got to tell you one more piece of that story. This is a totally ludicrous piece of that story. So how come I didn't end up being a journalist? Well, one very big part of it is my life partner, John Rubin, who I was in grad school with. And in contrast to me, he was doing computational vision. He started off working with David Marr. And in computational vision, you know, you can just make stuff up. You don't, the data don't need to work out. And so he was like exerting very little effort and the papers were flowing. He was Mr. Success Story, Mr. Golden Boy. And here I am like doing these painstaking experiments and they're bombing and like the whole thing was very irritating. Anyway. So at the end of grad school, I thought, okay, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll hang on by my fingernails and get the damn PhD. And then my strategy was I was going to apply for this fellowship that's run by AAAS to get uh, recent science PhDs into journalism. And I thought, okay, that will be my segue. I'll do science journalism for a while, and then I'll switch to real journalism, like political journalism. Um, and I made the mistake of telling John about it. Whereupon the two of us finish our PhDs and go traveling around the world for months and months. And I can remember we'd been hiking in Nepal for like two months. We, this is just like barely emailed. And um, we, we get out of there and we fly to, we were changing planes in the Singapore airport. And I can remember we were phoning home from pay phones next to each other. And at the time, like there'd been no email. My parents didn't know we were alive. I mean, you know, so it's kind of a big deal to call home. And my mom had collected all the relevant mail and I knew that the uh, response about this fellowship would be in. So I'm talking to her on the phone. It's like, yeah, mom, open the envelope. You know, we did everything like a telegram because it was so expensive, like a phone call. And I didn't get the fellowship. And I get off the phone and John is on the next phone and he got the fellowship and I didn't. So he makes movies and I'm a scientist. (laughs) At the time I was furious. But it worked out okay for both of us. Wow. If I'd gotten that fellowship, I wouldn't be a scientist. <laughs> uh, that's insane. Isn't that oh, funny? God. Wow, yeah. that's amazing. All right. Yeah. Um, wow, okay. Twists and turns. I, I told you it was chaotic. Oh, that's incredible. Wait, so, okay, so I read that you won a MacArthur Fellowship in Peace and Oh, yeah, that was later. That was later. Okay, so then, how did this go? Uh, yeah. No, it was actually, it was about the same time. So yeah, so I had applied for the AAAS thing. I had also applied for this crazy fellowship the MacArthur Foundation was running, not the genius thing. This is a thing they had, 
they had decided that uh, one of the problems with the threat of nuclear war was that there was this overly professionalized insider group who was doing all the thinking about nuclear weapons. And so they needed to shake things up by bringing people in from different fields. And I can remember the first two few times I saw the listing for this fellowship it was a two year thing. Uh, you know, that was designed to bring people from different fields in to think about international security. And the first few times I thought about it, I thought, mm, cognitive psychology, uh, international security. And I tried to make the Venn diagrams overlap and they didn't overlap. But this poster was right in the hall in our building. And every time I passed, it was like $30,000 a year. That was like a lot of money with very few strings attached. And I kept trying to shove those, those that Venn diagram to get some overlap. Um, and I did for just long enough to get enough overlap to write an essay. And then I was shocked that I actually got the thing. So I spent uh, a couple of years thinking about, um, well, basically studying nuclear strategy and thinking about uh, arms control and nuclear weapons and basically diagnosing all the stupid things people said about nuclear weapons in terms of um, cognitive reasoning shortcomings, um, which was entertaining. Um, I mean, it was fascinating and entertaining, but I ultimately decided that uh, the real causes, the kind of more root causes of bad foreign and military policy have more to do with economic forces that were driving arms production than psychological biases. Of course, it's both. But anyway, I, I, didn't, I didn't feel like my efforts to do psychology experiments to illuminate it were being all that helpful. Yeah, that I told um, you it was a crazy path. <laughs> um, but no, that I think that's a really noteworthy uh, worthy point. Is that um, you know, I think it's worth flagging that like as people who are invested in and trained in and love psychology, you often think, well, yeah, I mean, it all it's all minds in the end. Those are the things making decisions. So that's uh, but you know, there's oftentimes as you know, we have levels of analysis in in cognitive science and everything. Uh, the levels of analysis, the mind level is often not the one that is most germane to solving uh, these these problems. Uh, and I feel like that's an important thing to keep in mind with, as a psychologist. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, God, okay, so man, so let me make sure I have this straight. So in, <laughs> in graduate school, it was touch and go on, you know, just getting the degree, just, uh, just getting there. Uh, uh -huh. and, then, and then- It never would have happened without Molly Potter's unbelievably wise guidance, generosity, um, just, you know, refusal to let me drop out, yeah. you know, it was really something. Um, and then, uh, when you came back from Nicaragua, did you actually, did you have like a thing that you, that you did? Based yeah, I on? wrote some stuff and nobody would take it. Yeah. In hindsight, I don't blame them. It sucked. Yeah. <laughs> I really didn't know what I was doing. So I had, it was a really interesting time and I, I had a good time, but it was, um, you know, it was not quality journalism. That yeah, that kind of sounds about right for like. There's a reason why you have to write about fires for five years before you can write about cool stuff, or maybe uh, two. I don't know, you but know, like whatever. not zero. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I, I can I can I can see that. But you did get enough of a like. I'm going to start conceptualizing worldly issues in a way that when you did actually sit down to draw a line between cognitive uh, psychology and nuclear proliferation uh, policy, et cetera, that you actually were able to make a legitimate enough line to 
to get someone to to think that uh, like okay yeah come on and, and and give us give us your two cents on on this topic. Mm-hmm. But then so you did that for two years and that was I think right after your PhD. Was it was there a moment and was it was it just that realization that's like ah well you know I'm how, how did you get back into basic psychology research yeah. from a I potential. Was- you know, you had a lot of momentum going towards the more applied worldly stuff, minus not getting that, you know, fellowship. Yeah. So I had, I was trying to do these basically like social psychology experiments on how people think about, I'm trying to remember this. Yeah. I was applying the fundamental attribution error to, or actor observer asymmetries and how we account for others' behaviors to perception of uh, international actions. So there's this thing called the security dilemma. Um, that's well known to political scientists. And it consists in the fact that the things that a country does to make itself feel more secure look from the outside a lot like the things the country does to make itself uh, prepare itself for aggression. And so that causes positive feedback and arms races, right? So countries arm and they may be arming defensively, but it looks offensive. And so you get this whole cycle. So I was trying to... um, see to what extent psychological phenomena like actor observer asymmetries and the fundamental attribution error fed into that. I mean, it's exactly, it's a, it's a very parallel idea that you look at another person's action and you account for it uh, in terms of their internal characteristics rather than the situation they're in. In other words, why is that country arming? Uh, because they're aggressive jerks, not because they're afraid of their outward situation, right? Um, anyway, so I tried experiments like that, and I found that I could just get any answer I wanted by exactly how I wrote the stimulus materials. And then I thought, oh, this is a bunch of garbage. I'm not going to keep doing this. Um, but then the other relevant thing was right before I got my, the, the way I actually managed to get a PhD was that Helene Intraub, uh, who was a longstanding collaborator of Molly Potter, had come up to MIT and visited And she and Molly had been studying this really interesting idea that when you uh, look at a rapid serial visual presentation sequence of words, you would get these very fleeting conceptual representations that would register for a couple hundred milliseconds and then go away. It's a super interesting idea. And I think they were onto something really powerful. And, you know, and and Molly wrote about it just with unbelievable depth about how, you know, this is like the structure of thought is these like fleeting conceptual representations that led to each other. Anyway. And that would just kind of vaporize within a few hundred milliseconds if they didn't attach to some broader structure. So they had invented this task, which they thought would be pretty easy, in which they would stick a repetition of a word in a sequence. And the task was just to say, did this sequence of random words have a repetition in it or not? And then they wanted to study how well people could do that as a function of the spacing between the words. And they thought, well, of course, it'll be really easy when the words are close together. And then it will get harder as they get farther apart because under these very rapid presentation conditions, people will by then have forgotten the first item. And what they found was the exact opposite was true. When the words were very close together with only one or two intervening words, people could not see the repetition like at all. And so they're like, oh, that's weird. That's really weird and that's really interesting. And my umpteenth, you know, semantic priming experiment had bombed. And I kind of meekly said, can I look into this for my thesis? And they incredibly generously said, sure. You know, I mean, uh, you know, if this was a lab like you see in, you know, modern, you know, 
biological neuroscience, the PI would be grabbing stuff and like giving it to the most powerful postdoc and all that. But no, Molly Potter is like the most generous person on the planet. She's like, of course. And Helene and Trump too, you know, she could have um, seized that, but they let me play with it. And so I just love this because it was a massive effect size. And so that's how I got my PhD was basically working out what repetition blindness is all about and characterizing it and uh, saying what I thought it meant. Um, and, you know, I was done nine months later having done like, I don't know, 15 experiments um, because it was easy and fun. The effect sizes were big. It was wide open. I didn't have to replicate other people's puny little effects. I could just play. It was, it was actually really fun. So all that happened so fast that I hadn't, you know, come up with a new plan for, oh my God, maybe I should stay in science after all. But then into the MacArthur uh, international security thing, as I decided that I didn't really know how to make psychology all that directly relevant. I thought, okay, maybe I should get back to, to, you know, real cognitive psychology. So I wrote a grant and got it amazingly. Um, and Ann Treisman very generously agreed to let me come out to Berkeley to do the research in the grant um, affiliated with her lab. And so that's how I got back into science. So here, here's a question that's sort of maybe orthogonal to some of this stuff is, uh, and you've alluded to it a little bit, but um, who were you reading that was most influencing you uh, at the time? You've, you've, you mentioned the people that you, you've worked with and that sort of stuff, but I'm interested both from a psychology position as well as if, you know, when you had the idea of journalism in mind, who, who were you reading that was like, oh man, this is, this is the good stuff right here? Well, it's really trite, but it's, it was like Chomsky more than anyone else that, um, that got me interested in doing that. I mean, I just remember, actually, I was, not a, I was not political at all. I thought, you know, politics is mucky and complicated and there aren't deep principles. So that's not my, you know, it's not interesting. And I was walking across the MIT campus and there was some kind of, you know, outdoor event and Noam Chomsky was speaking and I was just passing by. And he made an extremely simple in hindsight, unbelievably obvious point that had never occurred to me before, which is like, actually, you don't have the luxury of ignoring politics if you just because you don't think it's interesting because you pay for it with your tax dollars and you are directly morally responsible. And that had never clicked for me before. And oh my God, you know, like I really am morally responsible for all this horrible stuff the United States was doing in Central America and all of that. And so that was not so much, you know, as a model of journalism, but as a like really influential moment. Um, and then, yeah, I was just reading, you know, the Globe and the Times and everything on uh, Central America and everything on the um, the nuclear arms race. Um, I can't even remember the other people I was reading at the time, but you know, just the most, um, you know, not like background uh, theoretical stuff. In fact, when I when I got the MacArthur Fellowship, the first year is supposed to be spent learning something about international security since most of us didn't really know much. Uh, and I can remember I, I took a, I went to um, the Institute for War and Peace Studies at Columbia to study under a wonderful man named Robert Jervis who had done more to think about how psychology influences um, foreign and military um, um, policy and decision-making. And uh, I took courses on just, you know, basic courses on, you know, history and international security and, and nuclear strategy, which I didn't know anything about before. Um, and uh, 
where's I going with this? Hang on. Uh, oh, right. And so the, like the more theoretical treatment of those topics really left me cold. It was just, you know, lots of abstract nouns with non-obvious reference. <laughs> you know, the concept of international regimes, like the definition is like a paragraph long and I must've read it a hundred times. I still could not tell you what an international regime is. The lovely John Ruggie who wrote that definition, notwithstanding he was a very nice guy, his office was on the same floor and I just had no idea what the hell he was talking about. Um, so that was not that was not my kind of thing. More concrete, you know. I, I'm I'm more of a natural activist than theorist about <laughs> about um, political issues. Yeah, it's a good um, sort of bimodal distribution on that. More interested in the theoretical underpinnings of the the mind and the actual activism. What are we going to do about it in the political sphere? I like that. Cody here. If you're hearing this, then my guest and I probably just finished talking about the books that have most influenced their way of thinking. This is always one of my favorite questions. One reason is because a person's favorite books, or a smattering of the ones that come to mind at any rate, is such an interesting portrait of the way they think. But it's also a great way to find new books. There are so many books out there, especially ones that seem hot right now. But let's face it, not every one of them is going to really change the way you think about something important. One of the most effective ways to find those high-value titles is to read the things that have been most impactful to the people you admire or look up to. Speaking personally, after these interviews, I often find myself ordering the books we talked about or other books by the author that I may not have read prior to our conversation. And so I've started compiling book lists based on each episode of Cognitive Revolution. Each list collects a few of the books we talked about, any notable works by the author, and whatever else I thought would fit nicely with the rest. I appreciate you listening to Cognitive Revolution, and I genuinely hope you get something out of these conversations. If you do, I have no doubt some of these books will also be of interest to you. Instead of asking for money to support this podcast through Patreon or some other service, I'm asking you to buy a book. My book lists are hosted through bookshop.org. If you're in the US or UK, you can buy a book on my list, or actually any available book, and 10% of your purchase goes to supporting this podcast. You can find my list at bookshop.org slash shop slash cognitive revolution. That's bookshop.org slash shop slash lowercase cognitive revolution. In the UK, it is uk.bookshop.org slash shop slash cognitive revolution. Buying a book through these lists is the best way to support the Cognitive Revolution podcast, so please check them out and see if anything catches your eye. Uh, so okay, so here's a question: When did you start to suspect that fMRI was going to be a thing? Oh well, okay. So um, my first year in grad school, the first brain imaging study of visual cortex appeared on the cover of Science, and it was John Maziata at UCLA and his collaborators, and it was a PET study, and it was blurry as hell, but. I cannot express how exciting it was to see that image. It's like, oh my God, we can see inside. It was absolutely, I mean, I was blown away. And so I immediately looked at that and I thought, oh my God, all of these basic questions that we're grappling with in cognitive science, 
you could just look inside, right? So, you know, one of the big things that imagery debate is a, is a visual mental image like a perceptual image. And all of these people had been writing about this pollution and Coslin and all these people and lots and lots of behavioral experiments. And it's like, okay, this visual cortex get activated when you hold a mental image in your head. I'm like, duh, right? And so um, I wrote a research proposal um, to look at <clears throat> mental imagery and a couple other questions that just seemed like really obvious and wide open questions about visual attention. And I set it, sent it to all the brain imaging labs in the world. There were only five. There was one in Finland and there was one at UCLA and there were the GERS at UPenn and I forget a couple others. Um, and only John Maziotta at UCLA answered. I don't think he realized it was a 21 year old grad student who was just making stuff up. <laughs> Um, but he very kindly replied. And, um, and so, you know, all this is like through snail mail, right? And so then I just figure, okay, I really need to make this happen. So I went to the Society for Neuroscience Conference somewhere, I don't know when this one's 1983 or something like that. It was in LA. And back then, like grad students weren't sent to conferences, there was no money for that. And so I, you know, cobbled my way there, slept on a friends of friends of friends floor, took a bus like an hour across LA to get to the conference center each morning. Anyway, um, so I used that as an excuse and I had written to Maziata in advance saying, well, I'm, I'm gonna be in LA anyway for the SFN conference, can I come visit? Well, no, I was like going to the conference so I could get to meet Maziata and try to claw my way onto his scanner. And anyway, I, I mean, I was a, you know, I was a pretty um, unsophisticated uh, kid <laughs> and I didn't know really how to behave like an impressive adult at the time. I tried, but, you know, I think the minute he met me, like, it was like, oh my God, that's who this person is. Like it was kind of all over. Um, so that didn't work out. And so I just went on and did other cognitive psychology experiments, but I kept watching it and as functional, oh, and then actually, okay. So um, then like, I don't know, almost a decade later, I get my first faculty job at UCLA. And I'm still just doing behavioral stuff on repetition blindness. And um, one day I get a phone call and it's John Maziata. And he's putting a grant together and he needs, you know, cognitive psychology respectability on his grant. So he needs a letter of collaboration. And will I sign a letter? I said, well, you probably don't remember this, but we've met. <laughs> he claimed to remember. I doubt he did. Who knows? Anyway, so I sent him the letter and I started bugging him again. And this is literally a decade after I first decided I wanted to do brain imaging. And I had been like clawing at the doors intermittently in between with just no success. So, you know, the guys in St. Louis had started doing all these cool experiments, but they were not, you know, you just couldn't get in. You know, it was such a limited resource that unless you had some kind of powerful connection, you couldn't do those studies. Anyway, so there I am at UCLA and I start lobbying Maziata again. And he's, you know, he's a slick operator and he's being kind of evasive and we can't really tell. And, uh, and I did a bunch of letters for grants on him. And then one day he calls me and he says, oh, this grant is going off this afternoon and I need you to fax it like right now. I said, okay, John, give me two subjects. He said, okay. That's how I got to do my brain imaging experiment. And then I spent like 
months designing the perfect experiment because I had only two subjects and you can't reach statistical significance with two subjects, but I had to do something important and cool where there was a shot at discovering something, you know, getting, you know, um, impressive enough pilot data in two subjects that I could then convince them to go on. So I consulted with all kinds of people. I remember just like writing to Steve Peterson Cole and he's like, I've designed this experiment and I only get two subjects, so it's gotta work. Can you help me? Like, I did, he didn't know me at all, but he was really generous and kind and gave me all sorts of um, you know, feedback on how to design it. And um, that's how I got to do my first experiment. It was quite a, quite a battle before I got to. That's so <laughs> fun, wow. Uh, that's, 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 that's totally, I love that. And then so, okay, so did those two subjects work out? You know, I forget the details. It must, I, I think probably what happened was in the process of arguing for it and talking about the experiment, they probably realized that, okay, they're going to have to give me a whole six subjects or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I can't remember the first two did, but I remember running the experiments vividly. It was very exciting. I mean, you know. This is, you know, this is back with at the UCLA Medical Center where the cyclotron is, you know, way down at one end of the building. It's like a quarter of a mile away from the PET scanner. And so there's all these doctors in their white coats. And, you know, then there's like this big um, uh, timer when they decide that, you know, the patient's there with a, um, with a you know, thing in their vein ready to get the radioactive dose. And so then they need to spin it up on the cyclotron and they send it through this pneumatic tube system to the other, other end of the building. And so once the thing has been spun up and it's going to be sent to the other end of the building, there's this countdown and it's just super exciting. Everybody's like, you know, all these white doctors standing around and I'm like this, you know, hippie in my blue jeans sitting on the floor in the corner, like watching all this go on. And it was like, it was, you know, it was, it was super exciting. Um, yeah. And then, so, all right. So that's sort of like first steps. And as you know, you sort of describe it, so you can kind of, obviously you put a lot into that experiment, but there was a lot Everything was still to do. Uh, whereas, you know, um, you know, the the big, your most cited paper is on the, the fusiform face area. And it's, you know, one of these foundational uh, papers in cognitive neuroscience, that sort of stuff. So what is the line between that, which is really this incredible, like, wow, here is just something incredibly profound that this new technology allows us to do and one of the first you know of ways of, of getting to something that was that that deep so how did you yeah how did you get from this sort of like oh wow we could do anything to um to sort of getting just, to that one that one you know uh i was just being practical so that first pet study that i put together uh was on object recognition i was interested in the general case of object recognition which felt like the bigger question than the specific case of face recognition so I was trying to look for shape representations in the brain. Um, and we got some sort of compelling stuff, but I, you know, I did not learn how to do all the data analysis myself. And so I was stuck waiting for others. That's another big, you know, note to self. It's like, don't depend on anyone else to analyze your data. You know, I ended up getting scooped by a very similar paper by um, Rafi Malik, a beautiful paper. And because I was waiting for people to analyze my data, you know, we managed to publish ours, but it was like, you know, seconds, it was later. Um, but anyway, uh, I, somewhere in there, functional MRI was getting going and it was pretty clear that it was going to take over. That's part of why I didn't learn the pet data analysis stuff, because I was going to use this other method. And so then I, 
that was happening most um, excitingly at uh, the Charlestown MGH Center in Boston. And I was sort of had had enough of California and it was time to go back to the East Coast. And there was a job at Harvard and I was like, okay, this is gonna be my chance to claw my way onto a functional MRI scanner. So I went back and it took a long time actually to claw my way on. It wasn't a decade, but it took a long time. Um, and then, you know, I didn't have a grant to pay for it. I didn't have any resources. I just had, you know, I just had ideas. So I started off looking for shape representations again, and they just weren't as robust in the data. And so after trying that for a few months, I just realized, okay, we're not going to get something really solid and I'm going to get kicked off the scanner if I don't have a result. And if there is one thing that damn well has to be there in the brain from all the other evidence from prosopagnosia uh, and from the behavioral literature on face inversion effects and everything else, there is bound to be a special part of the brain for face recognition. And so let's just find it. And that was, so it was really born of practicality. Like I needed something pretty surefire. And it was not, you know, it was not out of my deep interest in face recognition. It was just like, this, this is going to be there. Let's go find it. Um, but you were pretty damn you, correct about, uh, you know, about that hypothesis. That turned out to be pretty spot on. Well, there was a lot, there was a lot of reason to think that it was in there. I mean, really from um, the behavioral literature, the patient literature, even some early PET scans that didn't have the contrast you want. And so they didn't really quite nail it. But, you know, there was a paper in, I think, 1982 by Justine Sergent that was like, you know, they scan people with PET looking at faces and objects. And then they had some kind of weird contrast. You couldn't quite tell, but it was suggestive. And there were just lots of other clues kicking around. There was some early intracranial recordings from Greg McCarthy and others. So there were lots of, you know, it, it almost had to be, you know? Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't really um, a radical discovery. It was more like, okay, we can see this thing. And now that we can see it, we can ask it all these cool questions. So I could I could ask you speaking of asking cool questions I could ask you questions about your career for like the next three hours but uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, your 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 mentorship and your your just sort of thoughts on on how you approach that sort of thing since you notably not only have done so much cool research yourself but have inspired and trained people who have gone on to do just incredible research and that's definitely you know one of the things that one thinks of uh in in terms of your legacy which is such a such a cool aspect of it uh, and so i just i just want to i want to yeah how, yeah how do you approach the mentorship of your graduate students what do you what do you what are your sort of principles that you take to doing that mm -hmm. um I've actually been a, a bit more successful mentoring postdocs and grad students. I mean, I've done some of each, but more Got more it. of the people in my lab have been postdocs, not by design. It just kind of happened. I think I think probably because I'm a little bit risk averse. Hmm. If I take people into my lab, I'm going to commit to them. And so I'm risk averse and it's always nervous making. And how do you know? And what if I'm committing to somebody who I don't end up getting along with? Blah, blah, blah. And anyway, so it's easier to choose somebody who has more of a track record. I actually think that, you know, there's just a wide open question about whether um, to what degree in science we are choosing rather than creating scientists, you know? And I actually think everybody I worked with had like, you know, obvious, you know, 
it was obvious that they had major skills and potential uh, before they did anything with me. So I would love to get myself some credit by actually kind of wonder whether I account for any variance at all, apart from just choosing people who already had it, which is okay, except that it's kind of unfair and that bothers me. You know, I hate to think of science as an engine of inequality, but I do worry about that, that by picking people who already have all the signs of success and helping them make more, um, we're magnifying inequality. So that worries me a bunch. Anyway, um, so what do I do? I don't know. I pick people who are fun to talk to and it seem like live wires and, um, and for whom we find a common interest where I feel like there might be a, a vein, a line of work that will go someplace. That sounds and, like you know, how uh, Molly chose her uh, students as well. Uh, I don't know how Molly chose her students. I mean, that sounds like from, the, from your description of the um, uh, the Harvard Square uh, phone conversation that you had. That yeah, sounds maybe. like those are the attributes that you exhibited. And she's like, great. I don't know. Yeah, come on by. We'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll figure out something to do. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. But, you know, I mean, it would be one thing if we were working on cancer, but we're not, you know, we're just discovering cool things about the mind. And I think it's just awesome. I think it's the, just the most thrilling grand quest I can imagine, but because it is more about intellectual curiosity than about solving real world problems, at least now, at least my, my research, it damn well better be fun. You know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it's really important to me to pick people who are fun to talk to and who are going to have a good time with it and throw themselves into it and not, um, you know, and who get like what a privilege it is to get to do this. So, um, you know, to me, uh, one of the most important things and challenges in mentoring people is, especially for postdocs, but even for grad students, I think the most important thing that you get out of grad school and, and, and postdocing is not just a set of skills. I mean, let's and some knowledge. Let's hope it's both of those things. But I think what you need to get to make it in science is your own distinctive niche. Like, what is your thing? What is your question? What is your quest? What are you? What are you trying to do? And how is it different from everyone else? And I think you need that for career success. People need to go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cody. He's the guy who does X. Whatever X is. You know, in a short phrase. Um, and I think crafting that, like finding an important question where the available methods can enable you to make traction on it and not everybody else doing the exact same thing, I think those are rare and precious. And so I think that's one of the most important things that a mentor can do is work with a student or postdoc and help them identify those things. Yeah, I think that that's a really interesting way of putting it. Um, and yeah, I know that that's really interesting and it goes back to sort of what you were saying about well that's a very tricky intersection of a particular personality the state of the field as it currently is right now because you do need to find something you know in the general case that is not overly picked over it's like you said at least the very least easier to do something that has not already been thoroughly combed through and so you need the intersection of the the person the opportunity uh and the the resources and, and sort of environment around them. Uh, and that's a very uh, hard thing to find and unfortunately relies on a lot of luck and a lot of privilege in a lot of cases. 
But I, I like the the implication that like if you do find that, the little stuff doesn't matter as much. Uh, the <laughs> implication being that if you find that niche that you are well suited to doing, that you can find some opportunities to get started with, uh, and that's going to be important to your your peers and your colleagues, then like, man, you'll find a way to do it to do it well and to do it successfully and to have um, you know people be interested in it. And all that sort of stuff, and I feel like that—that that is a very positive, um, a very positive, you know, sort of message on that, and it's really mm-hmm. beautiful in a way. Uh, and I think it's very clearly exhibited in in your, uh, uh, you know, both just the general things that I knew about your work going into into this, but also, uh, it, it, it's so cool how your personal experiences I feel like are are borne out in so many of those things. Um, I've I've one final question for you, which is the sort of, um, you know, maybe going back off that question of like, yeah, how do you, how do you make science work for more people? Do you, what is, how do you think graduate school education or ed, the education of scientists, that sort of stuff, do you have any ideas of, of how we could do that better? What sort of changes you would like to see in that front? Hmm. I'm not sure I have an answer to that question, but I will mention one small thing that bugs me a little bit. And that is that as I see this in brain imaging, but I imagine it's true in other fields as well, as more and more people get into it and become just this massive thing, it becomes very professionalized. Mm. And there's systematic ways that things are done. Like if you want to do this, you do that. You want to do this, you do that. And so you want to get into brain imaging, you learn all these procedures and I think that is that worries me a little bit, right? Because, you know, I think actually one of the real advantages I had is there was nobody to teach me anything. And so I just had to figure it out. And of course that was much easier then than it is now, but, but I think there are real advantages to just thinking stuff through on your own. You know, I mean, the whole, the whole way that we found the fusiform face area was that I didn't know that there were group analyses. Like I didn't have anybody to tell me anything and there wasn't much of a literature and I didn't know about group analyses. So I just made printouts of each of 10 subjects, face versus object activations. And they were like blobs and muck and all this crap, you know? And I just taped them on the wall in William James Hall where I was working at the time. And I just walked back and forth down the hall staring at these things. And I let the brilliance of my own visual system detect the patterns, you know? A, a standard group analysis would not have found the fusiform face area. It is too variable across subjects to come through in a group analysis with 10 or 12 subjects most of the time. Um, but I didn't know about that. So I just spent a lot of time looking at raw data. And I think that gave me um, a healthy distrust of a lot of the uh, procedures other people were using from group analyses to the whole fiasco with double dipping. Like, you know, I avoided double dipping because I once I had these activation maps, I thought, okay, that activation map, it says P less than, you know, 10 to the minus eight. Oh, but it's doing that on lots of voxels. Oh, hell, what am I going to do about that? Well, there's this Bonferroni correction that seems too stringent. And then there's this other really complicated thing that Carl Friston had already published. But God help me ever understand a single thing that comes out of his mouth or his fingertips. I never have. And I didn't then. And I thought, okay, I can't just follow something because this dude in England says it's okay if I don't understand what he's doing. 
So I will make up my own thing. I'm just going to split my data. I'm going to use some of it to define the region. Yes, I don't know what the P level is. I'm just going to take a stringent P level, and then I will have some held out data, and I'll analyze that, and I'll be okay. And you know, if I had had somebody to teach me about standard analysis methods, I probably would have been a double dipper. I would have missed things with group analyses, but I had nobody to tell me anything. So I just had to think it through from scratch. And so I, I feel like there isn't enough just thinking stuff through from scratch. And I think the field would be better if we all did more of that rather than just following this very professionalized, now systematized set of procedures that everybody knows are the right way to do X and Y and Z. Yeah, I think that's that's a great answer. And I think professionalization is the right word to put your finger on of uh, so I, I think a lot about professionalization and basically how it's antithetical to scholarship as you're describing it. Um, because what it means is that, you know, as an academic, your, your stated goal is to, to find things out about the world. That's, you know, scholarship or whatever you want to call it. Um, but professionalization, your unstated goal as an academic is to say things in a way that will impress other academics. And the further we get into, um, you know, sort of professionalized versions of our different disciplines and that sort of stuff, that's more and more what it becomes about. And with all the the results that you're talking about, like a, a remove from the analyses and from the just sort of uh, almost gut level, just, you know, sort of really getting into it and really being with your data, which is what you were describing, as opposed to just running it through the pipeline, because that is the way that reviewers are going to expect you to to have done it and that sort of stuff. So certainly I think that's one of the biggest things that people in my generation coming up um, through science now are, are facing is how do we balance the highly professionalized disciplines that we are being trained in now with that magic that you had when you were uh, you still have now, uh, no doubt about it, but when you certainly when you had when you were uh, uh, an early career researcher. Yeah, I think it's a lot harder now. I'm sorry to say that, but you know, I, I was just so lucky, like stuff was wide open and like, yeah, I had to spend 10 years banging on the doors before I got to do brain imaging. Okay, fine. But um, in a lot of domains, things were easy and wide open and there weren't like thousands of other people to compete with. You know, there are other people in the field, but not that many. Yeah. So I, I do, I do worry that, a lot, you know, the crazy stories from my ridiculous trajectory, I'm not sure you can do that anymore. You know, it's just so damn competitive. So I'm sure there are, you know, lots of exciting, bright, um, thrilling scientific careers to be had still, but they are harder and they're not as much handed to people as mine was to me. Well, Nancy, uh, this has been so much fun. I'm going to let you go because we're at an hour here and I also have to dash off to my Georgian language class. Uh, but this has been great. And uh, it was a huge pleasure to hear, especially about all of the crazy twists and turns that I uh, had no idea about, but are uh, completely hilarious, totally on brand and, and, and really fun to hear about. So um, thanks for taking the time to talk today. Thanks, Cody. It was fun. That's it for this week on Cognitive Revolution. As always, thank you for listening. If you've been enjoying the show, I'd love to hear from you. You can send me an email at cody.commerce.writing at gmail.com or a direct message on Twitter at Cody Commerce. You can also get updates on all the latest episodes by following at CogRevPod. 
If you want to support the show, you can do so by purchasing a book at bookshop.org slash shop slash cognitivevolution. Or if you're in the UK, uk.bookshop.org slash shop slash cognitivevolution. If you enjoy the show, I'd also appreciate it if you would consider subscribing through whichever platform you may be listening on or leaving a review on iTunes. These numbers are one of the main drivers of bringing in new listeners to the show. If you want to connect with me more generally, you can do so on Instagram at Cody Commerce. And if you want to keep up with my writing, the best way to do so is to subscribe to my Substack at codycommerce.substack.com. Oh, and by the way, you can also listen to my travel podcast, Notes from the Field, through whichever platform you may currently be listening on. Finally, you can find more about me and my work at codycommerce.com. As always, thank you for listening, and I'll be back next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution. Cognitive Revolution.